Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, my name's Holly Burrows from Bucks, and you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, why is cheese and onion the most popular flavour crisp in the UK? Okay, here comes the show, and remember, question everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian and writer, occasional actor Dame Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from... Well, we're talking everything from uh, Holly, from Bucks's question, uh, potentially uh, a trivial question, it's up to you. Why is cheese and onion the most popular flavour of crisp? Dane, have you, have you got any answers? Is there, is there a statistical uh, analysis to prove that point? Because I can go me, and look for that if you want. But I think uh, we should check because for me, cheese and onion is one of the worst flavours. And that's not me attacking uh, Holly. But I feel like Holly has an agenda here. And that was somewhat of a loaded question. Because um, I feel like switch. Yeah. No, so I've, got it, I've got it here, mate. I've got it here. It says cheese and onions emerged in the nations. This is in 2020. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I would say, keeping in mind, personally speaking, my personal opinion, that in 2020, the reason why cheese and onion was the most popular favour of crisp was because a lot of people lost their sense of taste and smell. <laughs> and cheese and onion was the most potent flavour for people to get any semblance of flavour from their crisps. But if I'm forced to entertain this narrative, Holly, mm. then I would say it's because cheese and onion um, probably the most standout flavour compared to the other flavours of of a crisp. Which are all very salty, and the, right? And one, very the most salty. Real, yeah, one of the more realistic ones, I suppose you can kind of mimic the flavour of cheese and onion. And then you get like three things, you're getting cheese, onion and potato in the same bite. Whereas I suppose salt and vinegar, like you can get it on any potato or any kind of chip as it's really salted. Smoky bacon just seems artificial in order to get the taste of bacon onto a crisp. Yeah, it's a good answer. It's a very, very good answer. And well, listen, you can ask about you can ask about anything on this show, listeners. Send us your questions in because, suffice to say, on this podcast, we ask and answer all the questions, don't we, Dave? Yeah, no question is too salty or too cheesy. And if you do enjoy the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and you'll never miss an episode. Or you can subscribe to us on Acast, the world's biggest podcast network. We can hear all of the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests, fresh out the packet. With that being said, on today's show is a comedian and writer. She previously had a career working as a prison officer in North London. She's had four shows at the Edinburgh Festival, numerous appearances on TV in comedy and politics shows, and lots of articles for The Independent on Sunday, The Mail on Sunday, and The New Statesman. Her TV credits are numerous, including Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow and Mock the Week, to name a few. Please welcome to the show, Miss Ava Vidal. Hi guys, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Where do you stand on crisps, flavours, 
Have I do like cheese and onion. I do. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I think they are the best flavor to repel people. Keep them <laughs> far away true. from you. Eat them before you go on stage. When you come off, the audience will approach you and then move back. But what if they're super fans? Isn't that even worse, though, if they're like, wow, well, I love cheese and onion. Fresh, fresh out of the packet. That's what I've, I think might happen. I feel like cheese and onion people shit. are like that. I think they're quite extreme people. Cheese and onion, it's like almost like Marmite. It's either like people like stay away or they're like, uh, breathe it into my eyes. So I'm really shocked that people don't like cheese and onion. It's usually the first word of this. If I know, I wouldn't come on. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. But, you know, we wanted to have a podcast where we entertain all narratives and we don't want it to be some kind of flavor-based echo chamber. Because, oh, okay. you know, there there are some people out there who claim they eat crisp when really what they have is actually uh, freeze-dried corn snacks. Monster Munch oh are not crisp people. That is true. I've just thought of something. Okay, so this is a while ago. I, I got a message from Amazon the other day mm-hmm. saying, oh, you bought some uh, pork scratchings. And obviously I'm Muslim now, so I wouldn't eat it. But back in the day, but I bought them 18 months ago and they said there's a problem with them. We're going to refund you. There's been some kind of trace of poison in them. <laughs> I was like, I bought that 18 months ago. What the hell are you talking about? It's eating them all. Yeah, that's not great, is it? No. That's really but I'm great. kind of staying away from all snacks right now. I, I, I just want to go out there again and risk controversy and polarizing my listenership by saying you shouldn't buy snacks that end in scratchings. That's how I feel. Mm. <laughs> anything that sounds like a uh, dermatological issue should not be enjoyed as a snack that's how I feel pork that's itchings chicken itchings oh, chicken they've itchings those, they've got duck ones now and I've duck scratchings even... yeah but their feet are webbed they can't even scratch themselves it's more of a duck duck rufflings duck scabs <laughs> duck scabs um, uh, no I don't want them no it's probably time for a question before we name any other disgusting snacks isn't it Dave <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Uh, As our very esteemed guest, we invite you to ask the first question. It can be any question you'd like, which we like to discuss for about 15 minutes. And then Howard here would like to pose you a question. She asks for the same amount of time. And then in keeping with the consistency that is cheese and onion crisps, I'm going to spring a question on you, which we can start for 15 minutes or some change. And then we'd like for you to tell all of our audience and listeners where they can find out about all of your good works, uh, past, present and future. How does that sound? That is perfect. No problem. Well, the floor is yours to ask the first question. Okay. My first question is, do you think this country is ever going to free itself from the bondage of being ruled over by ex-public school kids? Mm. Mm. What has inspired that, <laughs> that question for you? What I mean, look around, look at the mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, when are you going to learn your lesson? It's just like these same types of people all the time. And it's just, it, it, it baffles me. I'm kind of, you know, the working class should just rise up at this point. Mm. Oh, sorry, if, if Pretty Patel's watching, it's not me, it's a joke. And please don't take my passport. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think their limitations are? I think that's an important thing because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not against what you're saying. I'm just kind of trying to dig into it a little bit more. Well, I, that's the whole point. I don't see what, after COVID and after what's going on now, after just Boris Johnson messing up everything, I'm just like, what will it take? It's a good. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Mm. I think um, Howard, mm. um, of of the two of us, who would you say has has had a closer proximity to this uh, socio economic group? 
Uh, well, I, I could say I've probably, I think I've told you before, through my my partner, my wife's, uh, you know, there's some, there's some pretty elite people amongst their group. Not me. I'm from Ilford in East London and uh, never met anyone of that ilk. Um, so I, I, I probably, I don't know, Dane, do you feel that you've come close to some of those folk? Uh, I guess a few times I've interacted with them. Maybe not people from, I suppose, what would be regarded financially as the 1%, but um, I definitely have been around uh, people who've been predisposed to enter politics. And, uh, you know, I think a few of these people are actually within the comedy industry as well. Right. A lot of people are aware of, uh, you know, some people are either maybe been to a, a uh, boarding or private school or fee-paying school and uh, been around people of this nature. I feel like, for me, the first answer to the question would be, I'm not sure, because I feel like the working class or proletariat you refer to, Ava, have have class-based aspirations. And I feel like because this social status is dangled in front of them, I think some people feel that they will continue to allow a class-based or elite system to perpetuate because they feel that they, at some point, through a financial capital gain, can kind of transcend their class and enjoy the same privileges. So, for example, I feel like the political class in the UK stood back as far back as the Blair right years and allowed for London's property to become unaffordable just so they could uh, get close to the status of being the 1%. Hmm. I feel like Blair's and a few other politicians are millionaires that were aspiring billionaires. And Hmm. so they basically acquiesced to the whims of oligarchs and other uh, elitists to allow them to buy up the country so that they could, you know, get some of that runoff. So people who, even though they are already enjoying the privileges of being at the top, tiers of uh, a capitalist system still are trying to enjoy the benefits of a trickle-down effect. Because, Ava, do you remember when the Panama Papers came out? Yep. And then that journalist got killed in Malta? Yeah. Yeah. No one talks about that anymore. (laughs) And, you know, for people that are so financially focused within what's a free economy, I feel like it's weird that we investigate that some people aren't paying their taxes and laundering their money, and then somebody dies. And we're not as concerned about that as we were about, like, say, Jeffrey Epstein and his fixer friend being found hung in their cells. Yeah. Even though there is a link between all of those things in that the first thing we know is that Jeffrey Epstein himself was a a member of the financial elite and regularly rubbed shoulders with royalty and other leaders of industry. So... I, I just think though that there's 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 actually one interesting that you you've kind of flagged up here in what your answer was there, Dane, which is that is the power of the elite purely financial, uh, and it, and it isn't right. It, it's been proven to be kind of uh, you know that the power of the elite is also to be able to abuse that <laughs> that power, right? It, it doesn't it doesn't always just come down to the fact that they make a fuck ton of money, right? Well. Partially, I don't think it's. I don't think they necessarily make up the financial elite, but they are willing to commodify themselves for the financial elite. So that's why I guess money makes such a large part. Because if you do have wealth, you don't necessarily have to enter 
political circles because you can just lobby them. So, yeah, you know, a lot of the time when you see a lot of politicians, even though we think they get paid an impressive salary compared to the people that they are schooled with or educated with and the circles that they kind of are reared and uh, inculcated in, they don't really make the same money as their peers. Mm. And so what it seems that they tend to do is haul themselves for said lobbyists uh, on the promise of them having a powerful, advantageous position in this person's companies when they leave office. So, for example, the whole thing with the government and the PPEs, like what intelligent or educated person would give a contract for PPE to a former confectioner unless they were going to benefit from that sometime after they left office. Ava, do you, do you, how frustrated does it make? Do you feel like powerless about it? Cause that's what I think when people talk about it, they often feel quite like they just don't think there's anything we can do about it. I don't know. I mean, I've had times where I've felt powerless about it, but then I've had other times where I just thought, Oh, do you know what? What's the point in anything? Having yeah. any morals, any values, any anything. So, anymore I just think like I was trying to pose the question the other day on Twitter but people weren't really biting I'll probably do a Twitter space about it like how has had how has having Boris Johnson who's got sprayed his sperm everywhere he doesn't give a shit he doesn't care like how's that affecting people on the ground and I do think people are becoming more cruel I think people are not giving a shit I think it's like dog eat dog at the moment and I can't pretend that you know I I haven't partially given up. It's fair to do so. And I think it speaks to the fact that obviously um, morality itself, I guess, is somewhat subjective for an idea. And that morality will be largely based on cues that come from the framework on which your legal system is based on. So like, you know, Judeo-Christian fundamentals of being nice and taking care or considering or not taking from other people. Um, But also, you know, human beings within a society have to be somewhat led. So, for example, the prevailing political parties will dictate the ideological disposition of the proletariat and citizens within a society. So if you have a leading government institution that has no emphasis on morality, like there's not even sexual responsibility from your prime minister, there's no financial responsibility. When he's questioned about his competence and his role, he hides in fridges when the police are called to his house for domestic violence instances, when he's openly lies about sanctions against oligarchs at the beginning of a conflict, and then when he's questioned on that, he just walks out of the chambers, then what that, what that kind of does is that it ratifies other citizens to display that kind of behaviour. Because if you can juxtapose your own behavior with that of the leader of your country or diplomats or representatives of your society who are show, who are behaving in a more deplorable nation than you are, how how low does the bar go, really? Well, that, and that bar people, is definitely going pretty low, isn't it? Yeah, and, and for some people, that can alleviate you of personal or social responsibility. So mm. if you look at it, it means the, the worst of us or the worst within us is able to prevail. And for a lot of people... It's very. It's much easier for you to display those that kind of behavior than it is to aspire to be a better person. You know, it's much e- It's much easier, even psychologically, to feed into your sense of self gratification or your id, rather than trying to feed your super ego. Speaking in Freudian terms, and so, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's easy. And the reason I bring up the finance part is because 
The problem is, is that we have institutions or we supposedly have independent institutions and regulatory bodies that are supposed to over, overlook this kind of thing to make sure it doesn't get out of hand or the corruption or cronyism doesn't get to these levels. Problem being is that we incentivize a lot of people within these institutions with money. Yeah. So if you say to somebody, we, you work at HMRC, you get paid maybe 36000 a year to investigate somebody evading tax on a scale of millions and billions. It's kind of common sense for someone to be like, why am I only getting paid this much money a month where I can't really afford to buy a house in London when someone who avoids tax gets to enjoy all of this, especially in a world where we link self-worth or link your worth to your uh, status, your financial status. It's really hard that we have to find something other than money to get people to do their jobs. I think there yeah. is one bit of this though that is, uh, I'm trying to find some hope uh, for Ava here, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to find it, okay? But I do think that the, 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 the future throws up problems that they're not going to be able to solve. And if, if you know, as you kind of talked about, you know, people rising up, but I, th- I think it's actually also just about people being quite united in what uh, a vision of our you know, lives could be like. You know, the, the, the thing that I've often mentioned on this show, Dane, is, is this impending automation of a lot of the things that, that people do for a living that just aren't going to be needed anymore. And, and, and I always think about that in a positive way, which is, oh, great. You know, if we had a really kind of progressive thinking, uh, you know, government, uh, not just in the UK, just internationally in some respects, then we could find other things to do, <laughs> to do with our time than, you know, these jobs that we're now got robots to do. And, 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 and it would take for the, pe- the, the mass of people in our, <laughs> in our world to kind of say, we don't want to fucking just scrounge around for another job because the robots have taken our jobs. This is, goes back to our thing about universal basic income. The idea that everyone should just be given money uh, because there is money and it doesn't, there isn't a need for people to fight over it in the way that we're doing. You know, and, and once the jobs aren't actually there, like, let's take 40% of every job in the world gone, right, in what, 30 years they're predicting? I think it is, Dane, something like that. I've, I'm Say within it. a generation. Yeah, it's supposed to be, you know, this about a third have gone in, 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 a, in a generation, like you say. Well, these people's control over our lives might be less. If, might I don't know, be. I'm getting years and years flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think um, I'd say, I heard uh, from rapper Carla that the way British society is constructed is that it only requires like 2% of the population mm. to control the remaining percent. And that can be, that's from like, you know, systems of like kind of fused, feudalism and uh, as I said, finance and politics. And so that being said, I think ever, as Howard kind of says, is that we're getting to a point where this, uh, system is becoming untenable. Yeah. I think even people that are formed a part of Britain's middle class or bourgeoisie who have enjoyed that privilege of class superiority themselves have to acknowledge that Boris Johnson, for example, the prime minister, the position is not, it's not, it's no longer tenable. Like even removing my, of my own political biases are of Boris Johnson. The fact that you have a bunch of illegitimate kids for himself is going to be a nightmare of land and title. 
<laughs> that will tear his family apart, you know, because people know who he is. And I know that if I was uh, the offspring of Boris Johnson, the one thing I'd want to take from his name is the money and land that I'd be entitled to inheritance. So that in itself would be an issue. I think that impending issue um, running alongside a cabinet of people that are constantly given notice and having some of the highest um, Labour turnover within a government that I've seen in a very long time means that we're probably arriving at the end of an age. And that's happening alongside what seems to be a declining level of influence of the Queen due to this health issues and just the merit of her being old. And while that's happening, the outward perception of the royal family is also in decline, thanks to the efforts of the good people at Pizza Express. Um, and so I just think, I don't think it will be a, an epiphany that people go, oh, we need to redraft our bipartisan political system and our system of monarchy and, uh, and class. I think it's more going to be a question of, like you said, we're going to realise the extent of the damage and the mess mm. and we'll have no choice but to redraft how society um, works in this part of the world. I just think we're at the point now. I think the pandemic for me was almost somewhat reassuring because it showed me that, and I think what happened, and I think the thing is, one of the reasons that this system is allowed to perpetuate is because most people are not privy to uh, historical information where they're aware of any pre-existing system that was more effective than this one. And I think the nature of human beings is to kind of be like, well, this is the one I've known. This is the one that my grandparents have known. And so because everybody was somewhat able to thrive or survive in it, it can be the only effective one. And because it, and I read it, the philosopher, um, I'm going to get his name wrong, but I think it's Slavoj Zizek. And he's got a, a new book and he wrote, but he wrote an essay where he said, I think it's Hegelian theory where it's like, once a system changes, people feel like that present is now the past hmm. in that now, because it's this way, it must have always been this way. Hmm. So, for example, the way people look at Russia and its status now as the Russian Federation and prior to that being the Soviet Union, people feel like that's how it always was, not knowing that Russia itself probably had an even more prevalent uh, and rigid uh, system of elitism than we have here. And then it got to the point where people were like, we can't live like this no more. Or, you know, France, for example, at one point was also ruled by a monarchy until the storming of the Bastille. And so that probably has implanted a seed of social rebellion, whereby, for example, in the UK, we're already preparing ourselves to be fucked over for, the, for gas and utility prices. Whereas with the uh, Gilets de Jean, when the price of fuel was too high, they took to the streets because there is a uh, collective disposition of rebellion or social rebellion in the face of like cronyism or corruption. I don't think we've had that in the UK since... Uh, Old tax, right? Yeah, since poll tax. And so I think because of our relative comfort and, and, and privilege that we've enjoyed, having, having a superior and privileged position within the European Union, within the single market, even with our currency, um, and that's meant that we've not had the catalyst for revolution here. We're just overdue for one, really. So does that give you yeah, some hope? So. Does that give you some yeah. hope, Ava? A bit, a bit of hope? I'd say all, all the yeah, stars are lighting and all, all the ingredients, to, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're all they're all there. People to go looting so I can get some cheap stuff. I think Perfect. I think we're getting there. Or everything, everything, everything's just lining up. I think the thing, all the stars are aligning. The ducks are getting in a row. 
Mm. Um, I mean, so, yeah. I, I won't be taking part. I will watch from the window. I'll wave to people. Nice. Well, we had a we had a riot before. We did have a riot before, but I feel like that riot was very different to the last riots that we had because mm. the last riots were about us having the dignity of being a working class and having access to providing for ourselves. But then I think that working class became a consumerist class. And so the last time we write it, it was just to get stuff because the collective consciousness was about having stuff as indicative of your worth. So now I guess the next revolution is going to be more about us trying to preserve that humanity as Howard says that yeah. automation is going to remove those other two uh, causes for um, revolting. So well, it, it yeah. was a great question though, wasn't it, Dane? Very well, well Of course, I expect no. Sorry, was it boring? No, no it was <laughs> boring. We could have done the whole continued. But I'm gonna I'm gonna change things up for my question because you know, listen, Ava, I I, I put in your, your bio about your, your ex career, right? Uh, oh yeah. How long did you do it for? Was is that just a quick thing? Just uh, I served five years. So you did it for five you did it for five years? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so like I'm going to tell you something, right? I'm just going to quickly name some things. So like Shawshank Redemption, yeah. uh, Escape from Alcatraz, Green Mile, uh, American History X. I'd probably throw in there. Um, you know, there's a lot of these films. Uh, Prison Break, obviously. Uh, you know, Papillon. Like, there's a lot. I've I've watched a lot of prison films, right? And uh, up to this point, um, I haven't gone to prison, uh, and I don't think it. Uh, uh, touching wood. I don't think it's going to... Dane, you probably don't think it's going to happen to you. Howard, I would have said that before, but you know you can go to prison for uh, any kind of anti-government narrative nowadays or even protesting. Right. Okay, so maybe I will... kill the bill, kill the bill. <laughs> maybe I will go to prison. Um, my question is, and, and you know, Dane may have some thoughts here to, to add to what Ava's experiences uh, tell us. What, one, why am I? Why are people so obsessed with watching stuff about prison? <laughs> and 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 also, what what is it actually like? Because I don't think what I'm watching is what it's actually like. Or is that is that is that rubbish? <laughs> no, I mean you ask a very interesting question because it's kind of similar to the question they ask you when you go for the interview for the job. Hmm. They will ask you. Well, I first started at Holloway, so which is no more. But when I went to the interview at Holloway, the question they said is, what do you think is more realistic, prisoner cell block H or porridge? And the answer is porridge, because that's really how it is. What you're talking about is like the American prison system. Mm. And it's very, very different. And it is racially segregated. Um, They serve much longer sentences, which is why when people are calling for whole life sentences, it's like, don't call for that. Because when you call for that, people behave like that. So if you've got no incentive, you've got no future, you've got no way of getting out. It's like, I remember when Chris Grayling was prisons minister and I was called to comment and all this stuff. And he was like banning books. Like, don't do that. Like prison officers don't need you to do that. We need them to have books. We need them to sit down. You take all that stuff away. People are just fighting. So I Mm. think the kind of harshness of the American system and the fact there would be guns inside and the fact that, that it's just, yeah, it's, it's different. English is, is definitely more like porridge. You have your characters, you have your funny guys, you have, do you know what I mean? Everyone's sort of more mixed together. You have your jokers, you have your queens, you have, you know what I mean? But mm. it's not as bad, yeah. It doesn't feel uh, that like... Well, it's, it's, an, it's an industry in America for a first start. It's a, yeah. a, a whole in penal industrial complex. Like a lot of the prison system in the UK is uh, prefaced by HMP. So it's it's uh, tax funded. 
I think it will change, though. I mean, it's starting yeah. to change. Well, Thameside is, Thames is, Thames is a private prison, isn't it? Yeah, the HMP private ones are very, very yeah. different. Um, so, what, yeah, once you get more of them and it starts becoming all about profit, as opposed to rehabilitations where you're going to start seeing really gross stuff happening. Mm. But for the most part, it's fun. I was at, like, Pentonville for most of the time, which is just a local prison. There's just so much stuff that goes on. It's just incredible. You said it just used the word fun. Uh, it, yeah, it was fun. Well, the worst part of it was the prison officers, to be honest. They got on my nerves. But the inmates had stories for days. They were great fun. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and other, what, what's, what do you think is most misunderstood about? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, your quintessential inmate in somewhere like Pentonville? Because I always feel like when I talk to people about uh, criminality and recidivism and all of that, like I, I say one of two things is that you understand that most people that are incarcerated have been in the system since they were children. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing is that I just always say to people, when people have very conservative views about criminality or punitive measures, the only difference between you and a criminal is that you didn't get caught. Exactly. There but for the grace of God go I is what I live by. Mm. So I think the most misunderstood thing is like this, you know, constant raping and fighting and stuff like that. And it's just not. There's just like a lot of jokes. Like I learned to deal with hecklers as a prison officer. Mm. So it's just there's nothing I haven't been called. There's nothing that hasn't been shouted at me. There's no like it's a lot, a lot, a lot of banter. Yeah, I I suppose one of the problems it's interesting you brought up the fact that actually the guards are the problems because because you I assume given that you've been able to have a kind of career as a comedian uh got a bit of personability (laughs) with the with the prisoners right like as in you could you could communicate with them uh without kind of just telling them to fucking shut up and whatever else right whereas I assume a lot of people don't have that and therefore the, the tension and the, the aggravation just builds. There was one woman, I'm probably going to get whatever for saying this. I mean, for the most part, right, you've got to understand that if you're in prison and what you did outside is you were a drug dealer. Most drug dealers, unless they're like a big, are not battering people over the head. They're charming. They're funny. You go, you know, they've got little sleight of hand tricks, you know, and they'll pass you whatever. And they're okay. Gangsters. You can't be holding, you know, court over a load of gangsters and stuff unless you're personable and very, very charming, you know, probably say narcissistic, but you know what I mean? So there were times where there were certain officers who got assaulted all the time. You're like, 
Okay. <laughs> what do you want me to say about that? We had this one woman, like, mm. you've got to understand, like, I do a whole routine about how uh, male prisoners will talk to female prison officers and not want swearing in front of you and not want yes. this, not want that, and try and protect you. And, you know, chivalry is dead everywhere except male prisons, right? Yeah. But this woman, you've got to understand what kind of person she was. Like, if you are a woman in a male prison working there and you're assaulted 10 plus times, do you know what you have to... Oh, you know what? You might need to cover this <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> do you know what you have to do? I have a... Well, the point is that... Well, yeah, what you'd have to... You'd have to push it very far, but this, especially with a man who's already in prison will risk further... Well, okay. Have a longer is, jail time. No, but this is, this, this is another difference, right? I'm going to hell for this, but when you're in Holloway, when you're in Pentonville, the difference is you could sit there talking to a female inmate she just gets up and punches you in the face. You're like, bitch, what? The fuck? What was that? I'm oh, sorry, can you swear? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was like, you'd be like, what the, hell? what the hell was that for? They switch like that. With a male inmate, you can see it coming. Mm. They just shut down. They start breathing deep. They start going, get the fuck away from me. Get the fuck away from me. Like, it takes time. It's so rare for a male inmate to just turn around and punch you. This is the point. Like, do things like, a guy's on the phone, right? If mm. it's me, I'm going, not yeah. her. Slam and hang it up. You don't <laughs> even know what that guy's talking about. Yeah. It could be a sick kid. It could be uh, his marriage breaking down. It could be like, I don't know, it could even be people he worked for on the out that were threatening him or whatever. And you've just done that. Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying to quote Chris Rock, that she should have been assaulted. I'm saying I understand. Of all, of all the environments to grandstand. It, yeah, you just don't yeah. get it sometimes. It's not, it's not someone, then, someone who's got nothing to lose, really. And then they can't walk anywhere because, like, they changed it. They used to have, like, cross-recruiting. So mm. what they used to do was have, like... Uh, so in the London jails, you would find, like, loads of northern screws, right? Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want you locking up people that you went to school with and you were friends with that made you more susceptible to be bribed. Mm. So they would just do the switch over. So London uh, officers would go up there and blah, blah, blah. And then when they took away the prison service quarters and like loads of benefits and perks like that, and it cost a lot to move a whole family up, you know, and mm. the government didn't want to foot the bill anymore. So then you started having local prisons, which Pentonville was, and local officers. So I can walk around even to this day and still see inmates. So once you're in there behaving like that, you can't even go anywhere. Like, honestly, I remember there was this horrible officer. He had to move to Ireland um, in the end, right? I hope he behaved like that over there. But, like, he was just, like, walking across the road to the chip shop in lunchtime, and these guys drove past, wound down the window, and they're like, we're going to get you. One time he got beaten (laughs) up. He got beaten up in an upper street bar. Do you know how he spent his evening? He spent his evening under the foot of a former inmate. And every time he tried to get up, he said, I said, stay down and kicked him down. And that's how he got humiliated to the point where you could only go from the prison to the quarters behind it to the prison officer mess. You can't. Why? Why would you live like that? You know, you're, you're uh, a prisoner yourself. But you know what? I mean, it's it's uh, it's Nietzsche, isn't it? If you stare too much into the abyss, it stares back at you. And, yeah. I mean, you know, they, they say you can tell what a person's like. You will know what they're like. Put them in a uniform and you're just saying. Yeah. I mean, I could listen to this all 
day lot. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what what is it about this subject that I can? I mean, I'm not the only one, right, Dane? Like people. No, I completely. Are fascinated I completely agree with you. I think, especially when people watch stories of redemption and rehabilitation, and then freedom, because I think we find there's the there's a quant in that quantum of solace, whether you're in solitary or you're locked up. Mm. I think people get to just to the root of their humanity, and there can be that connection there. So, for example, you know, there requires for you to administer punitive measures to people you've never met, or if you have a willingness to do that, that says something about you as a person as well. Like, and I guess this is what Ava is saying to us, is that there's semantics involved, that if you can just be told someone's an inmate and have a crime described to you, with that, and then you uh, characterize and treat that person on the basis of that crime, um, and punish the criminal rather than the crime itself, Hmm. then that says something about you. Because if you're like, oh, this person killed somebody, so I've got to treat them like shit or I've got to abuse them, how are you different to being a member of an organization yourself? Because a lot of the time, people who are inmates are carrying themselves a code of ethics where they may be a part of an organization or may have a cultural or social belief based on where they're from, where they have to deal with things in a certain way. And so, in, as I said, if, if someone who's involved in the, uh, in the correctional system hmm can be equally punitive to somebody. How different are you to a criminal? As I said, the difference is that you get caught because obviously there's going to be an abuse of power if someone is given authority on either side of the the thin blue line that is law and order and criminality. So I think think, there's a saying, isn't there, the only difference between like the prisoners and the officers is what they wear. Yeah. Literally the same types of people. And stuff. So I think also, like with Howard's question, I think why, why it's so fascinating is people want to know what goes on behind closed doors. People want to know, like, that's why there's so many great films about relationships, because the only two people, you know, it's only the two people in the relationship who really know what's going on. Uh, government, like things that people don't have access to, because by nature, we're just all so damn nosy. Yeah, like people want to know. Yes, exactly. But no, I think as well, Ava. I think also people project onto when they see how when they see these non-conventional protagonists, like mm. um, in the Shawshank, like in the Shawshank, like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption. I think people are aware that there is a very uh, oppressive aspect of the system of uh, governance and order that we have. Mm. Even though obviously there is maybe a need for some unanimous ideas about order and uh, care for other living and sentient beings, there are elements of personal freedoms that um, we forfeit to have that order. Mm. And I I think there's a a deep part of all human beings that like to see or project onto an archetype which defies that order. So in the film, for example, Andy Dufresne is like an accountant who does things by the book. And so we could care slightly less about his story when it becomes a good man that's been falsely in prison, who's coming up with using all of his wits to escape his imprisonment, then we're all behind him. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, and I think that's the idea of like, even shows like Prison Break is that we as human beings, we, we, uh, the triumph of the human spirit is something that inspires all of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that can, you know, be a positive thing in the form of when you watch something like the Shawshank Redemption, hence it being a redemption because mm. he's been able to find a new life for himself. And I guess there's a part of the subtext of that is that the way he was living before wasn't really living as an accountant and just doing things by the numbers. Mm. Whereas taking these risks and having true bonds with friends and staff and 
you know, finding friendship and fraternity in a place where there should be no hope. Like, I think we can project onto that because it's us showing the uh, human spirit at its rawest. Like, literally climbing through the shit just to be free is a... Uh, he crawled through a, a river of shit. Yeah, crawling through <laughs> a shit pipe to be free is a... Uh, I think it's a, it's a narrative that most human beings can relate to. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just like... Uh, sort of fascination with what they do as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, how you survive in the day-to-day are just the tricks they come up with. They're genius. Mm. They're just absolute bloody genius. Like, I remember, like, one time we were, like, on the exercise yard, and we were just like, why are all the pigeons around here dying? They're all dying. It's like, it was, like, biblical. It's like a plague. Like, what the fuck is going on? And then this officer kicked this pigeon and it was really badly sewn and its stomach burst open. It was full oh. of drugs. Oh, they were shit. getting them. They were killing them. They were <laughs> scooping oh out God. their insides. They were putting the drugs in, sewing them and throwing them over. So it was just <laughs> oh, like, yeah. and then they took them up off the yard. It's just always, always something, something like, okay, so now we take all the stamps off the letters because people are putting drugs underneath the stamps. Then you've got to do this, then you've got to do that. And then wow. it's just, it's just a lot and you just it's about yeah like you said it's about survival mm-hmm. it's always obviously not going to be a big escape story all the time but it's about the survival of day to day and how often do you meet a murderer anyway you yeah. kind of want to just sort of talk to them and see what's yeah. about well, I think you've you've definitely helped me continue this fascination <laughs> and also the last thing I will say which sort of relates to my question is do you know who the best behaved most perfect inmates are Always murderers. No, no, no. Public school boys. <laughs> oh. So I'm letting people know, so you should send more of them there. Because right. they do just fine. Don't even think anything. They are Good. used to order. You go to boarding school. You oh, don't yeah, give exactly, shit. Yeah. You yeah, get yeah, up. Yeah. You do what you do. You end up where you are. They're perfect. I said this to somebody. They said I, was, I said this to somebody the other day, actually, Ava. I said that, like, people in boarding school are similar to inmates and they said I was crazy. So if you're listening, in your face. Yeah. No, I went boarding school. I'm telling you, it's like prison. It's the same, yeah. Yeah, they're well. getting you running around and all that. Oh, because like, I was, yeah, I was talking about Prince Andrew. Yeah. Because I was saying that people who are early in the systems, whether it's youth offenders or in boarding school, they're taught from a very early age that people don't give a fuck about them. So it's a lot easier to display sociopathic tendencies, like make legislation where you don't care about how it affects like people at large or to be a part of a gang that kills another organization because you're taught like to value only yourself or survival basically. Yeah. Exactly. I'll say one last thing so how I can move on. I'm sure he wants to, but <laughs> it, they call it arrested development. So mm. whatever age you enter an institution is the age you stop developing. So Boris is probably about six. Do you know yeah. what I mean? That's why he's so narcissistic and stuff like that. You go into these places and you just don't change. Yeah. And there's this said that's why really boarding school people are not fit to rule because yeah. there was a good article about it. But when this comes out, I'll put it on my Twitter. Nice one. Well, it, I'd love, I've loved talking about that and hearing, hearing the, the reality behind that thing that I watch. But, um, but Dane, final question of the episode, mate, over to you. What you good got, point. what you got up your sleeve. And Alvin, you make a good point because I also saw a, a, uh, a fact which said, I think it costs more money to send a kid to Felton than to Eton, hmm. which is crazy. Um, but yeah, for those who aren't aware, yeah, Ava did actually go to boarding school as well, and so, um, and uh, I've I've spoken about exploits in Edinburgh and stuff, but I'm aware that you had uh, been to the world's largest art festival before me, Ava. 
Um, now, I had got nominated as the first Black Britain for an award in Edinburgh. Oh, no, um, I'm so proud. Oh, I, thank, I thank you very much. But I'm also aware that by uh, receiving that commendation, that I too stand on the shoulders of giants like yourself. And I never got I nominated for a damn thing. <laughs> yeah, but groundwork had to be laid because I really feel like even even in 2014 when I was nominated, um, opening up Edinburgh ears and eyes to the Black British experience was something that they were still adverse to and still unaware of to an extent. Um, so, like I said, I'm aware that a lot of my predecessors, like yourself, had laid some groundwork and obviously being in boarding school as well is very interesting. And I wanted to ask you, Oh, also, the context of this, um, there's a new uh, show on BBC called uh, Black and British. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which has kind of been about people not sharing the same, I guess, quasi-liberal or centre-of-left or leftist beliefs that is normally synonymous with the diaspora. And that's another conversation for itself. But basically, obviously, I know you, have had, I know your experiences, and I wanted to find out from you, my question basically is, What's it been like in spaces of elitism like boarding school or comedy as a black British woman, particularly boarding school? Because I feel like when we spoke about elitism, this is normally a circle which most people feel are obscure to black people. And people tend to associate these elite spaces like going to a private or a boarding school with whiteness. Whereas obviously you are both very politically and racially astute and aware of self-image and it's a big part of your work. So I basically just wanted to give you the floor to hear what it's like being a black woman in a boarding school. I mean, it's a lot more common now, but back then we But back then it wasn't though, yeah. So. No, you wouldn't see other black kids. You definitely didn't see other Caribbean kids. If you saw other black kids, they were Nigerian or Ghanaian mm. for the most part. It was a very odd experience. I was always politically aware, even as a kid, and people don't will go, how come? It's like, because I'm just black. Like, I just didn't have any choice. Like, you were politicised. <laughs> you know, there's certain things that I would see and notice, like I remember being at boarding school and being at prep school and being sat down and told we were the future leaders of the world and we were this and we were that. And I was looking around going, hey, no one here looks like me. What the hell? What the hell? What part of, what, what part yeah. of what again? <laughs> I was just so fucking, I was just a different kind of kid. I was so annoying. So, like, I see it now because of my son. I'm like, oh, my God, I was annoying. Like, so it's different. My son went to boarding school, so it's kind of like... Um, Were you as good as he is at rugby, though? Uh, no, they stopped us playing. See, I changed the rules on rugby to allow the girls to play up to 13. We were we had to stop at 10 and I got the rules changed. And then the boys hit puberty and I didn't want to play anymore because they beat me up. Um, but, but still, but still a trailblazer nonetheless. The option was there. And that's uh, what feminism is, egalitarian <laughs> choice. <laughs> Whatever happens yeah, after was, choice is given, that's up to you, Ava. But yeah. the choice was created. That's the main thing. I think for me, like whereas with my son, I said, like, take advantage of this opportunity and do this and do that. I think for me, there was just too many things for me to fight at the time. I mean, the racism was absolutely horrific from teachers, from everybody. How did it compare and, in a boarding school to what you would deal with at, like, I guess, a Weatherspoons? Because I feel like there is a nuance to how racism is expressed by elites, because obviously they're involved in 
legislature as well as like, I think there's a difference between someone saying, go back to where you come from and somebody creating a law where they can destroy your documents to make it happen. Exactly. That's why I make that point all the time. It's like, you know, working class people might be pissed off that, you know, black and brown people are moved into their area, but they can't do a damn thing. White flight exists. <laughs> they'll yeah. just go. They'll just go, yeah. Or from make East, sure that you're not today, they'll, go from, they'll go from East London to Essex. Exactly, exactly. That's why um, they say it's the only way. It's the only way. It's the, it's the, <laughs> <laughs> I did a gig there not long ago and I raised that with them. I was like, and I followed you, hello. <laughs> but it really was like a white flight area. But there's all these kind of things, do you know what I mean? Like they, you wouldn't even get near them. So for me, it was a very confusing experience. And I think throughout my time boarding school, there's just like one teacher who I'm still in touch with today. Um, who like put me into writing, put me into the arts, put me into performing, put me in all her plays and stuff like that. And we still talk now. Um, she's just a lovely woman, Julia Stafford Northcote, lovely, lovely woman. And um, yeah, it was just a very confusing place for me. There's so many things that happened to me. Like I went to school, I don't even know what my mum was thinking to be quite honest. Like when I look at my, I've had kids obviously, so I went to boarding school at six. Six, you're your baby. So I was living in Syria. Are you send me over there to these crazy people? <laughs> like, for what? What the hell were you thinking? And I had this massive afro. I can't even comb my afro now, hence this, right? <laughs> so what the hell did you think was going to happen when you put me in school with an afro like that? Like, and, and then, you know, there's a big joke, like, all the white kids are just ready and they're going, and you're still creaming your skin. I'm still trying to get a comb through my hair. So one day they pinned me down. Well, they had to find me first. And you and no day coming from a Caribbean family. This is a no-no. Yeah. They're like, right, have a doubt. They put me on the haircut list with the boys. And uh, I was like, I will get killed. That is no way. Yeah. I remember being under my bed and being dragged out and fighting, like fighting the whole time and then pinning me down in this chair. And this guy was like, what the fuck is that? And I just got some scissors and just had this like uneven, after they just cut it off me. I mean, the horror. I actually still, I'm not, when was it? About a year ago, I had a conversation with that school because I was still complaining about it. Yeah. And so the pastoral care woman actually was like, can we have a conversation? I said, I'm not letting it go. Like you pin me down and you cut off my afro. I'm not a freaking sheep, right? So it was just like, but, and then I remember walking through the airport in Syria, like going home, we were in Damascus and my mum screaming and apparently she said, oh, look, like I walked through with my brother. She's like, there's another black boy at the school. And as <laughs> I got closer, it was me. I it was just like, so it was just, it was such a, like now, like my son's school and stuff, you go into the bathroom in that school and on the, well, he's not there now, he's, he's uh, just on uni, but mm. you shut the door and it's like Samaritan's call. We would be so <laughs> bloody lucky. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Samaritans, they have all their phones and they have internet and stuff like that. So I think a lot of the abuses at boarding schools that happened back in the day when they would drag you out of your bed and you had to do cross country and you would run around and it was just like no hot water, no heating, no nothing. All of that stuff has stopped now. Hmm. But it was like a very, very paying extra money place. for no hot water. Exactly, it was a weird place to be. Can, can, so, based on your on on reflection, um, and obviously the uh, landscape of like private education has changed. But yeah. can 
where there's these there you get these reports about um exclusions or disproportionate exclusions or overrepresentation among Caribbeans. Do you think that we are able to thrive in those environments? Is it possible to do so? Because they said there's a lot of West Africans are based there. Yeah. Um, but if we do thrive, because what, what's what's normally the outcome of someone that's come through boarding school? Because when I look at someone like the equalities minister or the business uh, minister, like in with a uh, Kemi Badenoch and Kwasi Kwarteng, respectively, obviously there is the outward outward display of uh, higher education. But it seems that these guys, more than anybody else, are always jumping to to deny the existence of systematic racism or or trying to remove critical race theory from curricula, even though it was never in there in the first place. Is that a function of the schooling? Is that the result of these abuses or these traumas, in your in opinion? No, I just think that those people are just uh, elitist people. They're just... Mm. They're rich. They don't care. Yeah, it doesn't have a fear. It doesn't have a face. They really yeah, exactly. don't care. So yeah. I don't think it's anything. They'll just do and say anything because, like, mm. obviously it's going to impact us much, much more when you see Quasi on Channel Four News against mm. a, a, a drill rapper going, "This is not your life." Quasi went to Eton, so you're not going to. Yeah. He doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Why would he care? He can't relate. He, so can't, he can't relate. Say, yeah. Yeah. Look at. Yeah. I mean, look. I know taking race out of it is oversimplifying it. Look at the shit that Dean Doris talks. Yeah, you would go on. It's your boys did this, he did that, he did that. But the way you put the added layer of race, but they all lie. They all yeah. sit there. They all lie. They all deny these things are happening. They gaslight mm-hmm. you. They just say it in your face, and I think that's just them and their survival. Yeah, this, this, I this, this, was this, very this worried. It's, yeah, it's not, it's not a race thing for them. They, they just want to, like you said, yeah, they, they're in, a, they're in a, a tax bracket and in a, mm-hmm. in a particular class, and they want to stay there. Exactly. But yeah. I was worried. Like I was like to my son, I just please do not be a coconut. Like that's, I just couldn't say. Be aware, but don't be like me either. Do you yeah. know what I mean? You can shut up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. It's so interesting. Make your money first. Are you going to write a book about this ever? Oh, I don't know. I've had talks about doing one over the years. I just think like... Or a teleplay. Like, Have you pitched a teleplay at all? No, I mean, I've spoken to some people. I mean, I, I don't even know which is worse, my childhood or my adult life, to be quite frank. Sounds like two um, volumes to me. Yeah, I don't know which one would make the more exciting story. Hmm. So, well, yeah. it, it's been a brilliant episode, Dane. We've covered a num- lot of ground, haven't we, mate? That's like a lot of stuff. We have, but I think, I think that um, the themes have remained the same. I think, like I said, we, we look at two ends of the spectrum. You have the elites who are inculcated with a certain idea and belief and they visit misery on the rest of us, which is the way a lot of, a lot of the time people describe the criminal organisations. So mm-hmm. um, just goes to show you, thin, thin blue line. Um, and thank you for explaining that line to us, Ava. Very much appreciated. Um, for those who are interested, like myself, where we can find out more about your good works and current current and upcoming. Oh, I'm on Twitter as The Twerking Girl. I am on... Uh, no, that's the only one I really use. I don't bother with you like this. Um, I do a residency at RVT, so I guess by the time this comes out, the next one we'll have will be 12th of May at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which is a queer venue, which is a very... Uh, you know, traditional space, queer cabaret venue. Um, Jeremy Corbyn will be on that show. So he says, I hope he didn't drop out. I have politicians and stuff on my show and then I mix them with like gay sex workers or like theatrical people or do you know what I mean? It's a very LGBT focused show. Like it, you know what I mean? But it's, 
expanding it and trying to get more black people in there, more black people of colour, so and, and people of colour. So a lot of them have said we could thought of this as a white venue. So we're trying to do something new there. Mm, so just is, continuing, yeah. continuing to yeah. stand in spaces where more, we never previously were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so then you've got I, nothing I, from I, school I, ever. No, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely nothing. And then I do a it's column in writers of colour, which media diversified, and she's just coming back now. So I do that every week, every two weeks. Nice. Ooh. Well, check it out, guys, and. Uh, it's been a yeah well I mean I just want to talk, go back and talk about prison again but I'm going to stop because there's different <laughs> yeah, episodes well, I have to have you back Abba thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you guys it was a lot of fun thank you very much you've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything hosted by Dane Baptiste for more from Dane go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBapTweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTeast. Our guest was Ava Vidal. You can follow Ava on Twitter at The Twerking Girl. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at The Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.